started. Let's open up God's word to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we are continuing really a series of teachings that I just started a few weeks back, um, a series I'm calling What Did Jesus Say? And really looking at hard, hard recorded words of our Lord, very familiar recorded words of our Lord, but are easily misinterpreted, misapplied. And tonight we'll be looking at one of those passages where our Lord speaks of wolves in sheep's clothing. So we're going to unpack that this evening. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 15, reading to verse 20. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, them referring to the false prophets, you will recognize them by their fruits. So reads God's infallible and holy word. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infallible, certain, and sure word, the only rule that we have for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We thank you, Father, for what we will be considering tonight from your word, truly a spiritually equipping portion of your holy scriptures to well equip us as the church in being able to recognize false prophets and our false teachers. And Lord, we therefore pray that much illumination by the Holy Spirit will be given to us as we hear your word opened up concerning this very sobering and this very critical passage of Scripture. We commit this, Father, into your hands for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When you think about and consider the content of the Sermon on the Mount, one question which might be raised is this. How do you suppose the Lord Jesus Christ would conclude a sermon like this? What would be? For instance, the closing remarks of our Lord on the heels of describing the nature of a true Christian in the Beatitudes. Jesus has told us here in the Sermon on the Mount that the character of a genuine Christian is someone who is humble, sorrowful over their sin, meek, merciful, hungering for righteousness, in pursuit of God as their chief aim, and always about the business of spreading gospel peace. 
what would be the conclusion to this teaching? Or how would Jesus finish this sermon where he has promised his followers inevitable persecution by the world as they hold forth a position to the world as salt and light? Or what would be Jesus' conclusion to everything he has taught us in this sermon concerning the place, purpose, and application of God's law? Calling on his followers to be forgiving instead of murderous, sexually pure instead of adulterous, holding the sanctity of marriage, the trustworthiness of the honest word, the refusal to be vindictive, and the commitment to demonstrate love even to our enemies. How would Jesus draw this teaching to a close? And further, what would Jesus say at the end of commanding his disciples to be devoted to God without hypocrisy or anxiety, or to treat others the way you would have them to treat you, especially as it concerns refraining from judging others with a hypercritical spirit? At the end of expounding such content as this, where I ask, do you suppose our Lord finishes this sermon? If Jesus were like so many modern evangelical preachers, he would probably end with a warm-hearted story or maybe with a light-hearted joke or some sentimental poem. In other words, due to the heaviness of this sermon, Jesus should at least try to leave the people with something pleasant and positive if he followed the example of what characterizes the most popular preaching in our day. But... Is this where Jesus leaves us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely not. What our Lord Jesus Christ presses on all of us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are words that speak in terms of warning and terror of the final judgment, mixed with an exclusive hope for redemption if there is repentance on the part of the sinner hearing this message. To say this another way, there is nothing soft or comfortable about the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. For example, our Lord begins his conclusion with a divine command to enter God's kingdom by the narrow gate. Jesus makes it clear that this is the only gate that leads to eternal life, but its way is hard and there are only few who find it. However, there is, an, there is another gate which Jesus describes as wide where many people enter because its way is easy yet its end leads to eternal destruction. So after all that Jesus has taught and expounded in the Sermon on the Mount, this is where he begins to close. There's only one way to enter God's kingdom. There's only one way to have eternal life. The only way is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's through faith in him alone. But this way of faith in Christ is difficult because it demands self-denial. It demands repentance. It demands a death to self and sin. And there is nothing easy about a sinner dying to self. But God meets us with grace to both trust Christ and flee from sin. This is the narrow gate and there is no other way to eternal life but here. However, if we reject God's narrow way, if we reject Jesus Christ for another way of alleged salvation, then we will be found in the wide gate on a pathway to eternal destruction. But this path, our Lord tells us, is easy because it appeals to our flesh and demands nothing from us in the matter of repentance. No rules, no restrictions. We can believe whatever we want. We can live however we want. 
Yet despite the easiness of this way of life in the wide gate, it is deceiving and destructive. The wages of sin is death. Sin's final payment for its servants is eternal hellfire. This is the warning which our Lord sets forth for all to hear and take heed. Two gates, two ways, two destinations, but this is only the beginning of our Lord's conclusion. There is more to our Lord's closing in the Sermon on the Mount. And this evening I want us to see what more there is by looking at verses 15 through 20. In this passage of Matthew 7, we have nothing but a sheer frightful warning. And the warning is against the coming of false prophets. As we look then at the content of these verses, what we're considering is what I'm calling simply the danger of false prophets. Let's read once more then verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. When our Lord begins here with his declaration and imperative to beware of false prophets, he was not impressing on his disciples a new kind of enemy to the people of God. As one writer put it, as long as God has had true prophets, Satan has had false ones. Thus, in Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, for instance, Moses warned the children of Israel against false prophets who would potentially deceive the people by signs and wonders as a bait to draw them away from worshiping and serving the true God. In Jeremiah chapter 14, 13 through 16, false, prop, <clears throat> false prophets are exposed as those whom God never sends, speaking lies in God's name and assuring God's people of things which God has never promised. In the New Testament, these kind of warnings obviously do not cease, as we see right here in our text. But looking further from here in Matthew 7, we see Jesus in Matthew 24 warning his disciples to be on the lookout for those who come claiming to be the Christ, that is the Messiah. Jesus said they will lead many people astray. In Acts chapter 20, 29 through 31, the Apostle Paul warned of false teachers like false prophets who were going to invade the church in Ephesus, not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things, drawing away the disciples after them. In Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul gave the church at Rome the same kind of warning and described such false teachers as self-indulgent, self-serving deceivers who trick the naive through smooth talk and flattering speech, creating division. Also, in 2 John verse 7, the Apostle John warns his readers that many deceivers have gone out into the world. And the Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, devoted a whole chapter to the presence and danger of false prophets and false teachers. And finally, Jude devoted his entire letter to the grave warnings against false prophets and false teachers whom, he reported, have crept in the church unnoticed, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ. 
The point is, when our Lord says, beware of false prophets, this warning has been and will continue to be until Jesus returns an all-pervasive and highly relevant warning to the people of God. Therefore, as believers in Christ, we must always be on the lookout for false prophets. Now, why are false prophets called false prophets? Well, to answer this question, we must first define what a prophet is biblically. A prophet is one who speaks to the people of God the very words of God. Or as Exodus chapter 4, 10 through 17 points out, the prophet was the mouth of God. He was a man whom God called and sent to speak the word of God, which was given directly to the prophet by God himself. Hence, a false prophet is someone who claims to be sent from God and speaks the words of God to the people of God. But the key quality about this kind of prophet is that he is false. Everything about the false prophet is a lie. His claim to be called of God is a lie. His claim to be sent by God is a lie. His claim to be speaking the word of God is a lie. He is the ultimate deceiver in human terms. Posturing himself to be a man of God who speaks and works in behalf of God. But what is so dangerous about false prophets is how great their deception is among God's true people. A false prophet is not easily detectable. For one thing, this kind of man has a power greater than himself working behind him. It is a satanic power. Paul reveals this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 through 15, when he warned the Corinthian church of false apostles who were the equivalent of false prophets. He wrote this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Based on these words in 2 Corinthians 11, it should be no wonder that when God's word speaks of false prophets or false teachers or false apostles entering the church, what does Jude tell us? They creep in unnoticed. They creep in unnoticed. You see, the servant of Satan is well disguised to look and talk and act like a servant of righteousness. Indeed, our Lord tells us here in Matthew 7, 15, that these false prophets come wearing sheep's clothing. What's so important to take note of here about the sheep's clothing is that this was referring <laughs> to an actual wool garment that was worn by God's true prophets under the old covenant. Like Elijah, for instance, in his rough, hairy, uncomfortable clothing, symbolizing his self-denial of normal life comforts for the cause of God. Or John the Baptist, who wore camel's hair, acting to wool garments, eating locusts and wild honey. The point is, false prophets did not deceive God's sheep by impersonating the sheep but rather, the false prophet impersonates the shepherd who wears sheep's clothing in the form of wool garments. In other words, the false prophet claims to be 
God's man for God's people when in reality he is a servant of Satan with a mission to destroy God's people by perverting the truth of God. This is why Jesus describes the false prophet as one who comes in sheep's clothing, but, our Lord says, but inwardly he is a ravenous wolf. But again, detecting a wolf under the clothing of sheep is not easy. Why is this? Martin Lloyd-Jones gave several insightful reasons why there is so much difficulty in spotting a false prophet. The false prophet is a man who comes to us and who at first has the appearance of being everything that could be desired. He is nice and pleasing and pleasant, and right there you know, well, Pastor Kurt is definitely not a false prophet. He's not nice, he's not pleasing, he's not pleasant. He appears to be thoroughly Christian and seems to say the right things. His teaching in general is quite all right, and he uses many terms that should be used and employed by a true Christian teacher. He talks about God. He talks about Jesus Christ. He talks about the cross. He emphasizes the love of God. He seems to be saying everything that a Christian should say. He is obviously in sheep's clothing, and his way of living seems to correspond. So you do not suspect that there is anything wrong at all. There is nothing that at once attracts your attention or arouses your suspicion. Nothing glaringly wrong. The false prophet has nothing which is offensive to the natural man. He pleases all. He is in sheep's clothing, so attractive, so pleasant, so nice to look at. He has such a nice and comfortable and comforting message. He pleases everybody and everybody speaks well of him. He is never persecuted for his preaching. He is never criticized severely. He is praised by the liberals and modernists. He is praised by the evangelicals. He is praised by everybody. He is all things to all men in that sense. There is no narrow gate about him. There is none of the offense of the cross. I hope you can see from this very comprehensive description why the false prophet is not going to stand out for the false teacher and imposter that he really is. Remember, he is wearing sheep's clothing and it is very, very convincing. However, as deceptive as the false prophet is, yet Jesus gives a double assurance that this servant of Satan will eventually be exposed. In verses 16 and 20 of our text, our Lord encourages his church concerning false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's repeated twice. Obviously for emphasis, you will recognize them by their fruits. The central aim of this affirmation is that the kind of person a false prophet really is cannot help being revealed. In the same way that a healthy tree must bear good fruit because it is impossible for it to bear bad fruit, likewise, in the same way, a diseased tree must bear bad fruit since it is impossible for it to bear good fruit. So it is with the false prophet. What he is will eventually be revealed. Hence, our Lord assures us, you will recognize them by their fruits. But... To recognize a false prophet, and listen closely to this, to recognize a false prophet by his fruits takes time, discernment, and patience. 
On this point, John Stott gives us very helpful counsel. Look at this. Stott says, The application of the fruit test is not altogether simple or straightforward. For fruit takes time to grow and ripen. We have to wait for it patiently. We also need an opportunity to examine it closely, for it is not always possible to recognize a tree and its fruit from a distance. Indeed, even at close quarters, we may at first miss the symptoms of disease in the tree or the presence of a maggot in the fruit. To apply this to a teacher, what is needed is not a superficial estimate of his standing in the church, but a close and critical scrutiny of his character, conduct, message, motives, and influence. Needless to say, that takes time. That takes time. Now the question we need to raise here concerns the kind of fruit we should be looking for in a false prophet. Since our Lord assures us that we will recognize them by their fruits, then what fruit should we see? What, what exactly are we looking for? Well, to begin with, we should recognize what he teaches. We should recognize what he teaches. The false prophet is known first and foremost by his doctrine. He is known by what he claims is coming from God. R. Kent Hughes, in his exposition of the false prophets in Matthew 7, suggested four doctrinal tests, which I believe are very helpful for us to take note of and apply in this matter recognizing who are the false prophets. First, the false prophet avoids preaching on such things as the holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath of God. The main emphasis, indeed the only emphasis, of all that he says concerning the character of God is that God is love. Now while it is biblically true that the essence and nature of God is love, yet it is just as true that God's essence and nature is holy, righteous, and just. When it comes to sin... God does not wink at it, but he stands opposed to it by his righteous wrath. But what's so deceiving about the false prophet, and pay attention to this, is that he does not speak against God's holiness or righteousness or wrath. He just doesn't say anything about it at all. He avoids any mention of God's other attributes so that he can lay all the emphasis on God's love, or we can more accurately say he lays all the emphasis on his own version, on his own interpretation of what he thinks God's love is. Second, the false prophet avoids any preaching on the doctrine of the final judgment combined with the doctrine of hell for those who die in their sins. Since the false prophet is the ultimate man-pleaser, he knows there is nothing more offensive for fallen man to hear than the reality of his facing God in the final judgment. Furthermore, man in sin never wants to hear anything about the reality of hell. Hence, the false prophet taking his cue from the flesh instead of God's word will never say anything about hell. So in all his teaching, his emphasis centers on having your best life now while never mentioning a word about the final judgment or the truth about hell hell. Third, the false prophet fails to emphasize the fallenness and depravity of mankind. 
the biblical truth that man is a sinner by nature, wherein every part of his life as a whole is corrupted, twisted, and dominated by sin, is consciously avoided from ever entering the content of a false prophet's message. Instead, they will aim their, te their teaching on man to build him up and talk about all the great things he is capable of doing with only a little possibility thinking. But most of all, a false prophet will feed man's ego by telling him the colossal lie that he is by nature a really good person. He's not a sinner. He's just someone who's made a few mistakes. All he has to do is believe in himself and try a little harder and God will be there to cheer him on because he's a good person anyway. That's one of the great deceptions of the false prophet. Yet what's so scary is that this particular lie sells books by the millions and packs in auditoriums by the thousands. Bring this very close to home, as it were, in our backyard, as it were, right here in Alabama. So, as we know, the largest so-called church, not a true church, but so-called church, in Alabama is Church of the Highlands. Two years ago, I was uh, watching an interview with their founding so-called pastor, uh, Chris Hodges. And what really got my attention about this interview, for one thing, it was the first time I've ever seen him interviewed, so I was curious just from that standpoint. But the interviewer asked Hodges this question. He said, in one sentence, in just one sentence, what is the whole purpose of your ministry? And here's what Chris Hodges said, verbatim. I'm quoting him verbatim. He said, my whole purpose is to help everybody reach their highest potential. That's the whole purpose of his ministry. To help everyone reach their highest potential. When I heard that, I thought, wow, so you are a motivational speaker. And then I thought, you know, any non-Christian motivational speaker could say that. There's nothing Christian at all about what he said. There's nothing biblical at all about what he just said. Did he mention anything about Christ? Did he mention anything about um, God in Christ, saving sinners? Did he mention anything at all that even remotely relates to the redeeming work of Christ? Nothing. Zero. The whole Central focus is on man, the betterment of man, man reaching his highest potential. And I said to myself, now there is the false teacher right there. There's the false teacher. No wonder Highlands has over 60,000 people. No wonder. Because, you see, it's that many people and many more who will heap up for themselves, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, who will heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, 
who will lead them away from the truth to tell them myths and lies. Because the majority, honestly, of the people who clamor after a Chris Hodges or an Andy Stanley or a Joel Osteen, the majority of those people Paul describes to Timothy as those who will not put up with sound doctrine. And so what will they, what will they go after? What will they center their lives around to hear taught? It's from men like Hodges who say, the whole purpose of my ministry is for people to reach their highest potential. Wow. And with that false, that false gospel, you send all those people under self-deception straight to hell. That is scary. That is frightening. And what that man will have to answer for at the judgment like that. Fourth, false prophets avoid preaching on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, what's important to note here is that a false prophet will say a great deal about Christ's death on the cross, but it's all in the language and with the aim of sentimentalizing Jesus' death. The real purpose and intent of Christ's death is never mentioned. The fact that Jesus was sent by God the Father to die in our place as our substitute, bearing, bearing the wrath of God in full for our sins, propitiating God's wrath, this central gospel doctrine is ignored by the false prophet. Instead, he recounts the historical data of what happened at the cross, perhaps who was there, what they said. He may even give in elaborate detail how Jesus physically suffered on the cross. But all the while, as you're hearing these historical facts about the cross, you will never hear the true reason for why Jesus was there and what he was accomplishing by the will of God. In short, the false prophet will never preach the gospel. Never. So, by the teaching of the false prophet, you will hear much about God, Jesus, the cross, the Christian life, but it's not necessarily in what they are saying about God and Christ, but it's what they are not saying. And that's the key. That's the key. It's what they're not saying. Their deception is in what they consciously leave out of their preaching. And I do emphasize consciously. Don't you think for one moment that Hodges and Stanley and Osteen and Furtick and all those other clowns, don't you think for one moment that they don't know what they're doing? Oh, they do know. Yes, they do. And they're laughing all the way to the bank. They're laughing all the way to the bank. We could add briefly to our aforementioned list of doctrines which the false prophet leaves out these other doctrines. Look at it. The doctrine of repentance. The doctrine of salvation by grace alone apart from works. The doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Joel Osteen, okay, one example, for instance. 
there at Lakewood in Houston. He has over 2,000 Muslims, devout Muslims. It's crazy, devout Muslims, who attend Osteen's religious fanfare. And he was posed the question, why don't you ever tell those Muslims that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And Osteen said, I don't want to offend them. I want them to keep coming. Well, at least he's honest, right? Honest all the way to hell. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Another doctrine that also that they will leave out is the doctrine of the local church as it is taught in the New Testament. They will talk a lot about the church, but when you judge what they say is the church based on what the Word of God reveals the church is, and especially how the church is really supposed to function scripturally according to the New Testament scriptures, then suddenly you see, whoa, that's not matching up. That is not matching up. Well, needless to say, this is how the false prophets deceive. They deceive by their doctrine. And this is therefore one of the fruits we need to recognize about them. But their fruits are not only in what they teach. In the second place, we should also recognize how they live. Recognize how they live. A wolf can wear sheep's clothing, but it cannot grow a sheep's coat. Did you catch that? This is why Jesus raises the question here in our text. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, while it is possible to put grapes on thorn bushes and figs on thistles, yet they cannot grow there. You see, that's the point. The essence of the tree determines the fruit they produce. Therefore, when it comes to false prophets, our Lord makes it clear that they are ravenous wolves within. This is their true nature. This is their essence. They have no genuine love for either Jesus Christ or his church. Instead, their aim and purpose is to destroy the church and shame the honor of Christ. The bottom line is this. False prophets are false believers. No matter how pleasant, sweet, nice, attractive they may appear at first for all the right reasons, yet over time what they really are in their character will reveal itself. It will. If we keep this in the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount, we should see that in the character of false prophets there is no humility. There is no genuine sorrow over their sin. There is zero meekness, no mercy, no hunger for righteousness, no pursuit of God is their chief aim. And there is no pursuit in spreading gospel peace. In other words, the false prophet will not exhibit the Beatitudes. They will not. You will not find that fruit on their tree. Not at all. Furthermore, we will find in false prophets a heavy emphasis and dependence on self-righteousness. They're, they're huge on teaching moralism while downplaying the righteousness of God's holy law. And due to their self-righteous character, we will see in them a people who are vindictive, unforgiving, 
immoral, dishonest, hateful, hypocritical, anxious, judgmental, and self-serving. Such sinful traits are the settled patterns of behavior and conduct in their lives where there is never any remorse, regret, or repentance over what they are as sinners and over what they've done in their sin. The false prophet is a false believer because he is an unbeliever. And this is the fruit we recognize by them, not only in what they teach, but in how they live. And lastly, but briefly, we should recognize who they convert. Hmm. What have you ever thought about this? Who they convert. In other words, we need to examine the fruit of their teaching in the lives of those they teach. Are those whom they influence more Christ-like? Does the influence of their teaching draw people to love Christ above all, to trust in Christ alone for salvation, and to obey Christ no matter the cost? Do they influence others to love the church and give themselves in service to the church? And do they influence others to live by the word of God as their final rule of faith and practice? These are just a sampling of questions to ask when seeking to recognize a false prophet by his fruits as it concerns those whom he converts. But of course the assurance we have from our Lord Jesus Christ is that we will, we will recognize false prophets by their fruits. What they teach, how they live, and who they convert. These three categories will show us the fruit we need to see in order to expose a false prophet biblically. Well, as we close our study of Matthew 7, 15 through 20, there are two simple, straightforward lessons which I want us to glean from all that we've seen from this passage as it concerns the danger of false prophets. Lesson number one, the Christian life is one of great spiritual conflict. Christian life is one of great spiritual conflict. While, while it is true that a Christian has God's promise to be the recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, yet the realm of spiritual blessing is also the realm of spiritual battle. Every Christian on this side of glory is facing a daily conflict against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The church of Jesus Christ is engaged in a spiritual war with the powers of Satan. And one of Satan's most effective weapons against the church is his own missionaries, the false prophets. This is why Sinclair Ferguson said in this regard, No believer ever escapes from Satan without him seeking either to recapture him or to have vengeance on Christ by hindering his spiritual progress. One of the ways in which he does this is through the influence of false prophets. So then we must at all costs beware of false prophets. We cannot fall asleep on this. We cannot say to ourselves, this will never happen to me. Don't be deceived. We must take heed to what Jesus has warned all of us of here in Matthew 7 in verse 15. Beware, beware of false prophets. Lesson number two. 
The best safeguard against false prophets and their influence is the regular study of God's word with prayer for the Holy Spirit's illumination. If you don't want to be taken by false prophets, then be daily in God's word. Renewing your mind by the truth of Holy Scripture as the Holy Spirit would give you understanding. Neglect God's word and you will be sure to fall under, under the deception of false prophets. So we need to repent of our laziness. We need to repent of our indifference. We need to give ourselves to the habit and practice of saturating our minds and hearts in God's word to guard us, keep us, protect us from the certain invasion of Satan's emissaries, the false prophets. But let me go so far as to say this. Whatever you hear preached by any minister, whether he's the most well-known, well-respected preacher in the nation or even your own pastor, or even your own pastor, I did say that, right? You need to follow the example of those faithful Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11, who after hearing none other than the apostle Paul himself, what did they do? They were examining the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul preached were true. So many Christians give no thought, just no thought to exercising this kind of responsibility when it comes to men who preach God's word. They're slothful and frankly uninterested in being sure that what they're hearing preached is a faithful exposition of Holy Scripture. And the sad results of this kind of apathy are pulpits filled with men who are not qualified to be there under any circumstances. Again, if we would be guarded from false prophets, we must be daily in the word of God. God's word is sufficient for such protection and discernment. So may we trust in him for what he has supplied by his word to keep us from being deceived. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for such sober, clear, repeated warnings throughout the whole counsel of your word to us to watch out, to beware of false prophets, false apostles, false teachers these emissaries of the wicked one who quite literally, Lord, dress themselves up to look and sound and act like a genuine man of God, and yet inwardly they are ravenous wolves. It is to us, Lord, looking at this on the surface from what your word admonishes us and warns us about concerning such false teachers and prophets, it is alarming to think, as your word tells us and teaches us, that they creep into the church unnoticed. Lord, we therefore pray, help us with greater discernment. Give us greater light according to your word. And work in our hearts as your people a more proactive, working daily in your word 
studying your word, memorizing your word, hiding your word in our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would become by the sanctifying work of your grace in each one of us walking Bibles. That we would know the truth of your word so well that we would be able very quickly to pick up on and to detect teaching that is truly false. We thank you, Father, that as your word also teaches and reveals to us that as the sheep of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, that we will truly hear our shepherd's voice. And so while there may be a time or a season that as your true people, Lord, we may, in fact, go astray by doctrine that is unsound, I thank you, Father, that the precious assurance of your word to us is we will hear the voice of our true shepherd. We will return. We will reclaim our place with Christ our Lord as his true sheep. And with that, Father, we pray tonight for so many of your true saints, of your people that are presently under deceivers who are somehow in some way being led astray by ravenous wolves who look and sound and act so much like true men of God. Father, we pray that you would deliver, that you would rescue your saints under such deception. But we also pray, Lord, that for even those sinners, those unbelievers under such deception, we pray that you will rescue them, Lord, that you will somehow in some way providentially bring the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to invade their lives with saving power, drawing them effectually to Christ. These things, these holy things, we bring before your throne of grace, petitioning you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. For his sake we pray. Amen.